Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday, we rerun some of the stories that have run on the podcast over the past 10 and a half years. From June 11th to July 2nd, 2020, we're going to be rerunning some of our very favorite stories that have been told by black storytellers about race and racism. As you probably know, a huge priority of ours here at Risk is to feature as many stories from people of different walks of life. And it's especially important, we think, that people are hearing about black lived experience from black people. That's why I want to remind everyone, if you, if you think you might have a story to share along these lines about race or racism, please, if you catch yourself thinking, yeah, but my story is not so spectacular or, oh, I'm not much of a storyteller, don't worry about that. If you have had lived experiences that made you emotional in some way, you have stories and we can help you shape them. So reach out to me at kevin at risk-show.com or to our pitches people at pitches at risk-show.com. There's lots of tips on how to pitch us at the submissions page at risk-show.com. So we want your stories. We can help you prepare them. And we want you all to be spreading the word to other people you think might have great stories along these lines. Now, for this episode, we're going to hear remarkable stories by first, Sophia Brown, then Wanda Bowser, and finally, W. Kamau Bell. Now, here's the show. Hey, y'all. So a few months ago, I got accepted into this program called BADA, British American Drama Academy. It was this program where I was supposed to learn about myself and become a better actress and all, and I wanted to see what my grandma saw. 
my grandma always believed in me to become this actress and pursue my dream, which I didn't even know I really had a dream, but she saw it, and I just wanted to see that. So when I went, I was really excited to, you know, get discovered by Idris Elba in the streets of Camden and <laughs> drink tea only at tea time because it was that specific and uh, eat overpriced food that wouldn't fill me up at all. I mean, I was overly juiced, obviously. <laughs> and when I went, I made the best of friends. I was never really a person to be casted as the main character. I was always like the almost main character, like I'd audition for Timon and get Pumba, or I'd audition for Dorothy and get the Scarecrow, or potato, tomato, potato, manato, you know, all same shit. And in London, I actually got casted as um, one of my first main roles, uh, as Boudicca. And that was super exciting, and I also made the best of friends and basically family at that point. And on top of that, got a few new hoes in different area codes, <laughs> you know. But. <laughs> but there was this teacher now, she had this demeanor to her that just made me like her. She was witty and funny, and she was just disrespectful as hell. But I liked that, because I didn't see too many teachers like that. She would just say remarks that really a teacher shouldn't say, and she told us that she got fired from her last job. And I always wondered why, but I was like, oh no, she's cool, because you know, she likes to play jokes. And you know, she had a gray aesthetic, maybe like yay high, her hair was thinning, and, and she didn't wear a bra, which I support. <laughs> no pun intended, actually it was intended. Uh, you know, hashtag free to nipple, but sometimes she would um, bend over just a little too much and I would get slapped, but I don't mean with her hand. You don't know what I'm saying? <laughs> and she made us do games so we get to know each other. So we did these name games. So we did a name, where you're from, and a gesture. So she goes first and she goes, I'm Laura. And she does a little thinker position. She's like, from London. And everybody else goes, everyone's Virginia, Kansas, Mississippi, Connecticut, gets to me. I'm from Oakland. And I already know Oakland has a negative connotation behind it. So I knew before going into it, I was just going to do something sweet. So I did a little peace sign, and I said, Fern. I didn't really feel that, but I thought, you know, I knew my audience, you know. And then she stops me and she asks me to do it again. And again, and again, and she didn't do this to anybody else. And she's telling me to be, be scarier, be meaner. You know, you're from Oakland, give me that Oakland hood. And I knew her ass had not been to Oakland, but I was giving her the benefit of the doubt because, you know, London's different. And I wanted to just think good of her, if that makes sense. And so, you know, I went on and I did it. And I did it, and I felt weird, and everyone was kind of looking at me like, hmm, but you know, no one really said anything. So I kept going along with my day, and then a couple weeks later, um, we had to do our, let's say, our scenes and stuff. And she lets us, she picks a monologue and a scene for us. And everyone gets a normal one, let's say Juliet from Romeo and Juliet, or uh, Orsino from Twelfth Night, and she gets to me and she says, I'm gonna give you Titus Andronicus. Do you know who or what that is? And I wasn't very Shakespeare um, educated, per se. So, you know, I said, no, I didn't know. And she said, well, um, it's a weird play. Um, and since you being the weird one in class, I thought you could understand him. And everyone knew damn well who the weird one in class was. It was a dude in the corner who picked out his toenails and ate it. And I was, <laughs> I 
I was damn sure the baddest bitch in the room. So they knew. And we all knew at the same time what she meant for weird. So I kind of was just like, okay, okay, that's cool. Um, and she's like, well, do you know why I'm giving you this character? And I was like, as a non-biased, can't see color ass would say, no, why? And she says, well, well, because you're black. You don't get it? Well, you're black and he's black. I mean, we's black. Don't you get it? The vernacular, right? I thought you could understand him, you know, the trials and, and say tribulations you've been through with your people. Yeah. And um, this is in front of the whole class and everyone's looking at me to see what I'm gonna do and looking at her like, damn, what the fuck did she just say? And I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do? So I'm sitting there like, okay, yeah, mm-hmm. I later looked him up and Aaron was a rapist and a killer, a black man. In this monologue, he talked about doing the worst things imaginable with no remorse. So basically she equivalized blackness and evil. I mean, they say light skins are the devil, but I didn't think I was that bad. <laughs> so we go on and, and on top of all the racist, microaggressive bullshit she was putting on me, I came down with this really bad flu. I still went to class for like three weeks, but it, it took me out for about two days of her class. And so we go into our mini meetings, and she tells me, well, she got the caucasity to tell me that I got a C minus in the class, when everybody else, Scarlett, Drew, Drake, Josh, Megan, all had A's. It just didn't make no sense. So I'm like, well, what can I do to get my grade up? Because nothing else was cutting it. And she says, well, how's the scene going? Uh, I was like, you know, it's actually going well, Desdemona, she does this singing part, and I play guitar and flute, so I thought maybe I can incorporate it into the piece. And then she's like, yeah, 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 that's all cool, no, but what are you gonna do, you gonna rap it? No. Say, so you gonna put a beat to it, yeah. <laughs> I was like, all right, okay. And by this point, I had already made an acronym for myself, being all the teachers um, kind of acted somewhat similarly, she was the worst, called To Be On P too black on premises. So uh, when I would be doing too much for them, quote unquote, I would just say, to be on P, and I told my friend KT, that was the quarter Dominican person in the class, but my teacher didn't know that there was any other black people in the class because I guess they were passing. So whenever I would be doing too much, I would say, to be on P. <laughs> so at that point, when she said that, I made another acronym up called unapologetically to be on P. So I didn't know which one I should do at that point. So I just said, no, ma'am. I was not gonna say, put a beat to it, uh, seeing that that's not a character trait of Desdemona. And um, she's about to die, and the person killing her is her true love Othello. But uh, oh, if, if you would like me to do that, massa, then I would be so delighted to please <laughs> That's what I wish I said. I know. <laughs> so the weeks went on, and it was time for our scenes and I sang my song. And then it was time for my monologue. I, that I had not done a thousand more, even now I curse the day, wherein I did not some notorious ill as kill a man, or else devise his death, ravish a maid, or plot a way to do it, accuse some innocent, and forswear myself set deadly amnesty between two friends, make poor men's cattle break their necks. She interrupts me halfway through and she says, yeah, yeah, that's cool, isn't it? But um, how about you try this? Um, for lack of terminology, 
Why don't you say, um, black it out? Okay, um, okay, how about this? Um, put your black into it. Okay, um, okay, act as a convict, okay, um, and she's starting to do these ape-like figures, and she's like, you know, um, put your Oakland slang in there. Walk it like you talk it, pimp. And I was standing in the middle of the circle scared, and everyone was looking at me and not doing anything or saying anything. I had options. Do I stand up for myself and take this bitch by the titty and throw out the window? <laughs> do I walk out the door or do I do it exactly the same? I really wanted that good grade and I just did it exactly the same. And she said, perfect. A few weeks went by and I was still just trying to see what was wrong and why nobody was saying anything, why she ran away right after class and why she felt, I knew she felt what she felt. And I knew she felt the energy in the room, but she didn't do anything and she never said anything. And I was quiet the rest of the classes. And I got called into the dean's office one day. And I went out and she told me that someone had told her from the class what had been going on. Because the moment she started saying things publicly, I think that's when she kind of fucked up. I was gonna say something at some point, so, so part of me was kind of pissed. I wanted to say it myself, but the other part of me was happy that someone else did say something and they care that something, you know, had to be done. And it made it easier for me to tell and made it seem like I'm not just telling a fantasy story or not a fantasy story, just a lie. Because this, this shit don't sound real. <laughs> And you know, it wasn't tiki torches and white hoods, but it was something close. They told me that they put her out of circulation, and, which means getting fired. And then they told me that they were also starting a brown training program because of me, and to teach these racist teachers, or just teachers in general, how to teach American POC children from America, which is great. So like, I'm basically like the Rosa Parks of Bada, but like, you know. <laughs> not even a brag or nothing, but. Um, but who knows, they might not fire her. I mean, I could go back and I could still see her there, you know? They might not have actually started the program that they said they were gonna start in. But as long as, if I can help someone else in the same situation, I mean, honestly, that's better than anything. And honestly, people keep asking me, you know, you're so brave, you're so strong for going through all this, but I didn't choose to be in this situation or this experience, and this is not a story on you know, fuck this teacher and I, I don't like her. You know, there's parts of me that still like, liked her somehow and felt for her because I'm a I'm, you know, personal person. But I mean, what she did was not okay. And the fact that she saw my color before she saw me or the fact that my color was too loud for her to even hear me, it's just unacceptable. And I just kept going back to that day over and over again when I went back to my seat, and I thought I was just came up so confident, and I came back so defeated. And I was in my, my seat, and I was writing over and over again to, you know, black it up. Be more black. Black enough. And I, that I had not done a thousand more, black it up. Even now, I curse the day. Not black enough. She, <laughs> wherein I did not some notorious ill as kill a man. <laughs> That's black. Accuse some innocent and forswear my motherfucking self. How black? Set deadly amnesty between two friends and 
Now you black. So take that. Your weave snatched, ooh, baby got back. Get beat blue-black just because your skin matched. Rodney King continued to sing, prayers to Trayvon and all my black wings. We look so beautiful just like we could, and now you saying things like, nigga, I wish you would. <laughs> you starting to like it, the attitude so hood, and mm, our food just tastes so damn good. Now get that shit back. And look at everything you lack. You could take all the oppression back, baby, but please don't ask. Uh, fun, just what's so black about that? Thank you. You two should have sex while I watch. I'm talking to my friend Brittany, and she has just proposed that Nathan, another one of our friends, who's in my dorm room with us at this moment, and I sleep together for her viewing pleasure. It's January 2003, a cold night in the middle of the week. We're all 18-year-old freshmen, and we've just returned back to campus from winter break. We have absolutely nothing better to do but make questionable choices. So Nathan and I look at her with bewilderment. I mean, the shocking part isn't that she wants to watch us hooking up. I mean, this is typical Brittany. She is wild and carefree and sexually experimentative, and she's nosy as fuck. <laughs> she, uh, she enjoys a good scandal. She loves gossip, and she's the bad influence friend that my parents would have never let me have in high school. We're more surprised because... We'd never really considered each other bedmates. I mean, Nathan was a member of our friend group. We walked to class together. We ate lunch in the cafeteria. We would watch movies in his room because he had the best TV. But I'd never given him the vibe that I was interested in him, and he'd never given me the vibe that he was interested in me. I didn't have a type back then, but I don't think he would have been it. I mean, he was this country boy. He chewed tobacco. He carried a bottle that he would spit in. Yeah, it's pretty nasty. <laughs> he drove a pickup truck and he blared country music. Again, I didn't have a type, but he wouldn't have been it. So Nathan laughs her off, whatever, Brittany. And I ask, why would we even do that? And Brittany says, Nathan, you've never seen a black girl naked. And you told me you were curious. And Wanda, you're a virgin. And you told me you don't want to be one anymore. Okay, let me back it up. I am a virgin in this moment, but it's not for lack of trying. I, Brittany knows about the two failed attempts to lose this virginity my fall semester. And if I had my say in it, I would not have even come to college a virgin. The small town that I grew up in in the South was not conducive to any fantasies of being a teenage whore that I may have had. <laughs> it was a small town, not a lot of diversity, uh, very few other black people there, and although black people will tell you we're not all related, and we are not all related, in this town, we were all related. <laughs> My dad was always saying, oh, we're related to the Tharps and the Porters. Oh, oh, the Jenkins boy? Yeah, that's your cousin too. So even though this is a South, cousin fucking is not an option that I want to explore. No, thank you. So that left me with white guys. And although I had several unrequited crushes on the little white boys that I went to school with. 
interracial dating was still very taboo. And we're not talking 50s and 60s. We're talking late 90s, early 2000s. But this is Tennessee, so <laughs> put that there. Of course, you had your white girls that would date black guys to piss off their dads. But it just wasn't the norm. It wasn't anything that you saw on a regular basis. We even had superlatives in high school. We had Mr. and Miss BCHS, and we had Mr. and Miss Black BCHS. And when I asked, what's the differentiation for? The faculty advisor told me, well, what if Mr. BCHS was black and Miss BCHS was white? We couldn't have that. That wouldn't do. Also, I was getting these underlying messages that black girls were just not as desirable as white girls. You very much wanted to have good hair. You wanted to have that long, silky hair that people could run their hands through, that was not the kinky curls that are indicative of a little black girl's hair. It was a total sin to have naps. Oh, the horror. You know, our lips were too big and our thighs were too thick and our asses were too fat. Looking like a Kardashian was not in then. And now people pay good money for all that shit. <laughs> Back in my room, I am nervous and I'm really embarrassed to be put on the spot like this. Nathan is looking sheepish, but he's looking at me like, if you say yes, I'll say yes. And why wouldn't he say yes? He's an 18-year-old boy and he's been handed this Playboy fantasy on a platter. I mean, of course he's gonna say yes. He's probably hoping it's gonna turn into a fucking threesome. <laughs> Although I'm nervous, I kind of start to consider it. I mean, I haven't considered him an option before, but now that I'm getting a good look at him, he's got this John Mayer thing going on, and I fucking love John Mayer back then. <laughs> he was tall, he had this like floppy hair, he had these mischievous eyes, and I really do want to have sex. I want to know what is the fuss about. So the spirit of what the fuck enters my body, and it feels like danger and adventure and the spirit of getting into some shit I'm not supposed to be getting into. And I say, yeah, okay, let's do it. At this point in my life, I don't have the foresight to realize that this will not be the only opportunity I have in life to have sex. <laughs> I think, okay, I've already failed at this twice. I don't ever fail at anything. So the overachiever in me is already pissed off about that. And I honestly, I don't feel confident enough that I could have set something like this up on my own. So I'm thinking, I need to do this now, and I don't really care what it looks like. So they are shocked that Goody Two Shoes, Bookworm Wanda is doing it, but goddammit, we're doing it. So Nathan and I go to our individual corners of the room, like boxers in a ring and disrobe. <laughs> The lights get turned off except for a lamp because I don't know anything about sex, but you have got to have mood lighting. <laughs> I get on my tiny twin-size dorm bed and he clambers on top of me and Brittany pulls up a chair to watch this show. <laughs> and she's got this anxious energy about her as if she cannot believe that this random thought that popped into her head that she said out loud is actually about to go down. I'm laying there and the what the fuck bravado that I had earlier, in this moment I'm scared. Like, I don't know what's about to happen and I can't believe that the three of us are in this position based on me saying yes. And this ball started rolling so fast down the hill, I don't know that I can say no. He's a little awkward, but he's excited. There's no foreplay, there's no kissing. He looks at me and he says, is this okay? I look up at him and I say, it's now or never. He 
pushes his way inside of me forcefully and it fucking hurts. Like, it burns like a motherfucker. And if you don't take anything away from my story, like if you go to sleep in the middle of it, remember this, ladies and gentlemen, lubricate, lubricate, lubricate. You cannot have enough lube because it should not have hurt as bad as it did. So I'm laying there like a corpse with my legs wrapped around his waist and my fingernails are digging into his shoulder and I'm whimpering like a dying animal and he's unrhythmically thrusting on top of me like a fish trying to get back into the water. And Brittany just gets up and leaves the room. Uh, if, I was, if I could have, I would have got up and left the room. When he's finished, I run to the bathroom and when I come out, he's left. The next day, the pain between my legs reminds me that I'm a woman now. Like, I had sex, and even though it wasn't the greatest, I want to do it again. I can kind of see what, what people do this for. So that weekend, Nathan calls me, and we hang out in his room alone for the first time. We hook up again, and without an audience this time, he is so much better. But beyond becoming casual hookup partners, we do start to get closer with each other. He's a cuddler, and so we spend nights hunkered under his blanket, and he loves when I twirl his hair around, and I love twirling his hair around, so I run my fingers through his smooth, silky hair, and I mean, we talk about our insecurities and our vulnerabilities, and we get to know each other. I mean, we shower together, and he washes my back and gives me forehead kisses. He lets me download all kinds of illegal music onto his desktop from LimeWire and Kazaa. And I'm thinking, if he's willing to risk federal prison time for my digital piracy, this must be fucking love. I mean, I've never experienced any kind of attention like that. And so for someone that hasn't had that kind of attention, it feels real. It feels like something that I want to keep. So... I start to notice that he only calls me when his roommate's out of town. I see him out with his mom, and he ushers her the other way as if he does not want us to meet. And when we're hanging out with our group of friends, he doesn't treat me any differently than he ever has before. It's like he doesn't want them to know. But because of the care that he showed me privately, I convinced myself that none of these things were important. I convinced myself that it didn't bother me. So a few weeks into my relationship with Nathan, the shrill ring of the phone interrupts what I'm doing. It's Brittany on the line. And she says, Nathan and Laurel got into this huge fight. Now Laurel is another person in our friend group. She dates black guys exclusively and she really just doesn't give a fuck what you think. And she and Nathan have a hate-hate relationship. They only tolerate each other because they're both in this collective that we've all formed. I don't really know what this has to do with me, but I know how Brittany is about her gossip, and I know she's just wanting to, you know, talk cash shit. So I'm like, okay, well, what happened? What's going on? She says, well, girl, Nathan called Laurel a nigger lover. I feel like I've been kicked in the stomach. I mean, my heart drops to my chest, and I feel like I'm being flushed down the toilet. And I start that ugly cry where you're hyperventilating between every word. <laughs> I, I'm like, I cannot comprehend how this guy that I cared about and how I thought cares about me could use such a derogatory, demeaning word to describe people that look like me. And I mean, that fucking word, that disgusting word, nigger, it reminds me of black bodies hanging from trees in a lynching. And it reminds me of the KKK 
terrorizing people with burning crosses. And it reminds me of the time in eighth grade when Jennifer Dominguez, not her real name, walks up to me after we watched Roots in the eighth grade and says, you know, my family probably owns your family. It's a reminder that no matter the content of my character, I am considered less than a person because of my skin color. And he had lobbied that word at her, nigger lover, as an insult, as if by loving a black person, she had something that she needed to be ashamed of. After that, I avoid Nathan. I'm sad it's over and I miss him, but I am so angry. We all avoid him. He's become this social pariah. None of us want anything to do with him. He's excommunicated from the group. One night, I get a knock on my door and I open it and it's Nathan. And he's standing there looking sad and pitiful and my anger wants to slam the door in his face and say, fuck you. But that soft spot that I have in my heart for him that had developed over all this intimacy that we had, it says, come in. So he comes in the room and he sits on the bed and we're quiet and I break the silence and I say, how could you say that word when you're with me all the time? What does any of this mean to you? He says, I'm sorry if you're offended. I mean, it's not like I even consider you a real black person. Uh, you knew that we started this on a dare. And I realize he doesn't look ashamed that he said the word. He looks annoyed that we have ostracized him and that he is suffering consequences for his actions. But in my mind, I'm also thinking, this is how these relationships go, right? White guy, black girl. I'm supposed to be a secret. It would be mortifying to, to him if anybody knew about me. I mean, I don't want to cause trouble in his life. I don't want him to have to explain to people why we're different colors. I mean, I know that in this society, it's not accepted. What did I expect? And I accept his fuckboy apologies, and I continue hooking up with him. It's not just that I missed him and what I thought we had, but it's that validation of being wanted. It's when you've gone your whole life without being seen and you feel like somebody sees you, you don't want to be invisible again. But this time it's different. I'm still willing to be all in, but it's not the same. We hook up, he gets up, he leaves. There's no more you know, showers and backwashing and forehead kisses. And as winter turns to spring and the weather gets warmer and warmer, he starts to distance himself until one day I see him on campus. And it's one of those bright blue days and you know, birds are chirping and bees are buzzing and he's holding hands with a girl and he lets go of her hand and puts his arm around her shoulder and brings her in closer and he kisses her on the forehead. And she's white, of course she is. She's acceptable. They can be seen out in public together. She's not a nigger, so she doesn't have to be a secret. And I see this scene before me that looks like a fucking Valtrex commercial <laughs> right before they tell you they have herpes. <laughs> I don't think he had herpes. I'm not going to put that on. <laughs> I don't think he had herpes. But they look like the happy white couple in the Valtrex commercial. <laughs> and I feel disappointed and hurt, but I also, most importantly, feel relief because... I know where I stand with him now, and it's never been clearer than it is. After the end of this semester, Nathan, he 
drops out of school and I don't talk to him again. For years, I dealt with a lot of humiliation and shame. This was a hard story for me to talk about because it's hard to process these emotions. It's not just that I slept with a guy, I found out he was a bigot, I kept sleeping with him, and then he fucking dumped me. <laughs> it's because I had internalized racist ideas that I grew up with, and within that context, I had allowed myself to be okay with disrespected. I had considered myself less than human because of my skin color. Nothing cataclysmic has really moved to change those feelings. However, as society has changed and as I've lived and I've evolved, and as black women have started to embrace the magic that is inside of us, as institutions are called out on systemic racism, and as individuals are called out on their outright racism, and as the collective has grown to realize that all love is valid, despite the couple's gender or race, I've realized that I had a lot of shit I needed to unpack and leave it in the past because it did not serve me in the present and I goddamn sure was not carrying it to my future. A few years ago, I saw where Nathan had commented on a mutual friend's Facebook post and I hover my mouse over his profile and I hover over the little button that says message and I wanna send him a message. I wanna tell him, I'm not a fetish. I'm not a cross off on your sexual bucket list. I am more than the ebony category on Pornhub. I'm a person, I'm a human fucking being and I am equal to you and I deserve to be treated like that. And my hope is that he will apologize to me because I want to forgive him at the end of the day, I don't send that message because I can't find the worth in doing that. For all I care, he can fuck off. I don't care. I don't forgive, I forget. And the person that I need to apologize to and show grace and compassion to is that 18-year-old girl in a dorm room who is making decisions with a limited frame of reference for how amazing and worthy that we really were. You know, we deserve better then, and these days we have better. We have love. We are seen, we have dignity, we have self-respect, and most importantly, we're not falling for the bullshit messages we get about who we are or what the fuck we deserve. Thank you. Give it up for the band, everybody. Kisses and grapes. That's what we agreed to, right? So I'm glad to be here. Uh, I, um, I am a comedian. I talk about racism a lot in my act and in my solo show. I end racism in about an hour. Uh, tonight I only have about 10 minutes, so I'm just going to make it worse. Uh, <laughs> thank you, these people. Uh, <laughs> these people are like, I don't really think that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> I leave tomorrow, so you guys will have to fight it out. Uh, you know, and I, it's, fun, it's weird to talk about racism in the 21st century because I really, in weird ways, I'm jealous of like my parents' generation and every generation before that because their stories of racism were all awesome. You know what I mean? If you told a story of racism in the 50s, there was like fire and gunshots and running from the town and... Ah! My stories of racism was, that white guy was rude to me. 
doesn't have the drama, you know what I mean? So I find, I, that's why I talk about it on stage a lot, because I feel like I can actually explain it a little bit. Like, I just have weird things happen to me. I'll tell a couple shorter stories than the longer story. Weird things where, like, you know, there's no, you don't know how to react to it. Like, like I was traveling around the country last year with a political comedy group that I am called, that I'm in called Laughter Against the Machine. And uh, we were making a documentary about political comedy, and we went to, like, political places in America where things are happening. So we went to Madison, Wisconsin, because of the union thing, and we were in Madison, Wisconsin, and we're hanging out at this fest called uh, Fighting Bob Fest. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of that. It's a big liberal festival in Madison where they like, fire progressive politicians, and a lot of people speak. Uh, it was like uh, a lot of lefty progressive people like Greg Palace and Tom Hartman and Cornel West were all there and blah, blah, blah. And so we're watching this thing and then we're walking around talking to people and filming them for this documentary. And people keep coming up to us and saying, thank you for coming. And I was like, wow, thanks. Everybody's polite. And then the more I realized that they're not thanking me, the, me and the other members of the group for coming, they're thanking me for coming. And then finally, at one point, this woman comes up to me and goes, looks at me, ma'am, you'll be me. That's when I realized, oh man, these people think I'm Cornell West. <laughs> That's weirdly insulting to both of us. Uh, <laughs> I'm nowhere near as old as him, and he's like, and I'm way cooler than you, uh, is what he told me in an email. Uh, that's not the only time. So that's like, a, that's, I mean, there's clearly some racism there, but it, I didn't have to run from a town screaming. And that's not the only time. I'm not going to put stuff like that only on the Midwest. You know, a lot of times in this country, we try to put things on the, the ignorant stuff on the Midwest and the South. But I live in San Francisco. Uh, <laughs> yes, I hear there's a lot of San Francisco and Wesleyan. Uh, so I live in San Francisco, and, uh, like, I, was at the, I went to a lunch with a friend of mine, and the, the, the waitress, the server, was giving us really good service and being kind of, like, weirdly sort of flirty with me, and ex like she was excited to be around me. And I was like, well, that's, I do have quite a popular YouTube channel. Uh, <laughs> 6,000 views and counting. Uh, <laughs> and she was really like, I was like, well, you know, I guess this is my hometown. I'm a comedian, you know, it works. And the next day, my friend says, I went back to that restaurant. You won't believe what happened. I said, what? The, waitr the waitress said, oh my God, how do you know the lead singer from The Roots? <laughs> Which is fucked up twice because, first of all, the Roots are a hip-hop band. They don't have a lead singer. They got a lead rapper. That's not the same thing. Second of all, that guy's real short and always wears hats and is real dark. It's like he doesn't look like me. She means the drummer, Questlove, who sits in the back. He's got a big afro like me, but I don't look like him. You know how I know that? Because I'm not him. I just feel like, I just feel, it's just a weird thing. I just feel like, I think, I just want to say this, and I want you to spread it around, because I know you guys are the, like, the white people here are the good white people. I get that. <laughs> I get that. <laughs> Look, some of you are applauding. Yes, we are. Uh, yes. That's true, Negro. Slow down. Slow down. <laughs> but, you know, like, I just feel like, just go tell your other white people, because, you know, you're all related to ignorant white people. You know you are. You know, just, we're all related to ignorant people of our era, you know. Just, just let them know that more than one black person can have a nappy afro at one time. Uh, we don't hand them out individually and say, okay, Questlove, you get it for the first six months, then Cornell gets it. What would those white people have done in the 70s? I see Michael Jackson everywhere. <laughs> so it's, you know, stuff like that. It's just these weird little stories of 
of racism. Like traveling, like being a comedian, I'm on the road a lot, and when you first start out in comedy, you have to take gigs that you wouldn't, that common sense tells you not to take. But you're, you're trying to get gigs, so you take gigs in places like Lovelock, Nevada. Which, why would you name a place Lovelock? You know, like, <laughs> the love is locked out. Like, literally, I had to take a Greyhound bus to Lovelock, Nevada, which is the middle of nowhere, in the middle of nowhere. And I told the driver I was getting off in Lovelock, and he was like, really? <laughs> and so I did do two nights in Lovelock, Nevada. And, uh, and it's just a weird thing, because you do these gigs, and I mean, literally, when you go to such a small town out of nowhere, and you come from a city like San Francisco, you kind of feel like you're coming from the future. <laughs> and I'm not trying to put them down, it just feels like that, it just feels like, you know, like, and, uh, you know, it just, you know, and so I get this, so I do the gig, and it's just not going to go great, you just know it's not going to go great, because it's, you're, it's just, there's too many cultural, this is, differences to try to make jokes about something, and so the first night goes okay, uh, and then I'm like, oh, okay, that's fine, the second night, and you got to wait the whole day for the second night show, and you're just in my hotel room, like, mm. <laughs> and then the next, second night, they decided that, uh, that uh, the first night had gone too well, so they decided to have a wedding reception in the middle of the comedy show. <laughs> And they're like, these comedians need a challenge. <laughs> and so it just went, it was horrible. I mean, you can't, you just can't do that. There's like children and grandma and a black guy yelling about racism. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, so I finished the show and I go back to the hotel room and I do what I do after bad shows. I get under the covers and turn on the TV and just start thinking about other career options. <laughs> and at like 4 a.m. in the morning and I'm still up, I hear outside my window, this is true, the KKK are on their way. And here's, I'm from San Francisco, I've never ever heard that before and never thought that I would hear that. I live in San Francisco, like the, even if the KKK wanted to come for me, they would get so distracted by all the other shit that they wouldn't make it to me. <laughs> There's gay people and Mexicans and even Catholics, we don't like them either. So, and gay Mexican Catholics. And so literally, I'm like, I, I, like, I hear the KKK is coming and I'm like, I get out of bed and I'm like, and, and, and I look out the window and I'm like, I'm in my underwear and I'm like, should I put on my clothes for the KKK? <laughs> and I look out my window and I realize that the guy who's yelling that is yelling at the only other black guy who there who works at the casino. And I really weirdly had this thought, I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> They're coming for him. <laughs> All right. I mean, like, like, as if they would show up and be like, is it you? No, it's the other Negro. Let's get it! <laughs> but apparently I found out the next day that that's just what that guy does. He gets drunk and he threatens for the KKK to come. That's, that's what he does on Friday. <laughs> he's like, oh, he's always threatening. They, yeah. He was kicked out of the clan years ago. <laughs> so it's just weird. So... So that's like my base, like I just have all these weird racial experiences, but then recently uh, it's like I'm having a whole new perspective on race because uh, me and my wife had a baby. Actually, she had the baby, I got a baby. <laughs> that's way, way better. <laughs> if you can choose between having a baby and getting a baby, get a baby. <laughs> Clearly I'm only talking to the lesbian couples. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's way smarter than a lot of people gave it credit for. Thank you over there. So, and my wife is, is white, and I'm black, and uh, 
so we and so that means the baby is a mixed race baby and so it's like a, just a whole new level of like thing that I had not thought about or prepared for so like the, my wife the, the baby's eight months old now and uh and she's adorable because that's how it works when you have a mixed race baby that's just an, <laughs> that's just evolution helping out you know <laughs> look you're black and white that's gonna be confusing people are gonna yell at you you're not gonna fit in any world you're adorable <laughs> it's evolution it's just <laughs> so, I mean, she's really, really adorable. Actually, hold on. Uh, so, and so, like, and so we have the baby, and the baby, like, uh, like, so, like, our wife has the baby, and I'm in the, the living room with her, and she has the baby, and the baby comes out white with my nose. That was, I was like, hey, oh, okay, all right. Like literally, I was like, okay, uh, all right. Now, and literally, it was just a weird thing. Like, I was, it wasn't weird for me. I wasn't upset that my baby was white. I was like, cool, when she grows up, she can tell me what white people think about me when I leave the room. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's not good, Dad. It's not good. So I'm not, I'm not caught up in that at all. Uh, but it was just funny to see my wife's like family like I remember her brother walked in and met our daughter and he was just like and a little bit he had this look of like what happened is that the right baby but then I felt behind that he was a little bit like yes not in an evil way just in a uh, I don't know just so but the thing is is that they don't doctors don't tell you this no baby stays the same complexion as when they're born even babies born of one race, when they come out, they look like one thing and they start to get their complexion changes. So what's happening now is literally, as each day goes by, my daughter's getting a little bit darker, but I don't know where she's gonna end up. <laughs> so, and so I'm just sort of charting her color progress. Sometimes I take out a Michael Jackson CD and I'm like, it's dangerous, it's dangerous today. But, but right now she's at this weird, my daughter's at this real part, this is true, at this weird part of her color complexion where she's like getting darker, but if I hold her, she looks white. But if my wife holds her, she looks black. <laughs> yeah, she's kind of like a broken chameleon, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you're doing it the wrong way, baby. You're doing it the wrong way. But what happens is when I walk around the world, the world sees a black man with a white baby and that's not the combination the world is used to seeing. I mean, the, the white guy with the black baby, they go, oh, that's so nice, where'd you get him? You know what I mean? But like, <laughs> that, you do so much charity. But, but a black guy with a white baby, people get really like, they start to look around and stare. And I remember, like we went to the airport one time and this, this older like uh, Japanese woman was looking at my wife and me and the baby and like trying to figure out how this all worked out. <laughs> it was just a weird like, and I was like, She's like, oh. <laughs> like she, and so it's just this weird thing, but when I walk around, I realize that the world sees a black man with a white baby, which means people stare and look and get confused. And it just means that like when I walk around, I, there's a little bit, I can't just be a dad with this kid. I have to be a dad with this kid who's also sort of like protective of the fact that like, I'm worried that like what's gonna happen in the future? Like how, how long does this go? You know, how do I tell, how do I explain this to her when she gets older that people think that we're not together? You know, I don't know how it works. But, and the story I'm telling, the story I'm gonna tell is the biggest, the greatest, the most sort of, the biggest example of that. So, uh, baby was about six months old, 
and me and my wife are gonna go take, uh, visit her parents, my wife's parents. Uh, and we, they live like two hours south of where we live. And when you're a new parent, like you literally, it takes forever to do anything. You're like always an hour and a half late to everything because you just forget all the stuff you have to do to take your baby somewhere. So you like, you like, so you leave the house, you get in the car, you start driving like, oh, we forgot the stroller. So you go back to the house, you get the stroller and you start driving. And you go, oh, we forgot the blanket that she likes. So we go back and then you go, oh, we forgot the baby. And you go back. And then, so we get, so everything just like the stutter start thing. So we're in the car and my wife goes, you know what? Now we, it's taking us so long to leave. I need to feed the baby. You know what? I'm just going to pull over here and feed the baby for a little while. And uh, after we fed the baby, we're like, she's like, wait, we can't just put her back in the car seat because she's been in the car too long already and we haven't left yet. You know what? We need to put gas in the car. Why don't you take the baby, walk the baby like it's two blocks down to the gas station and I'll meet you there and uh, we'll fill so she can be out a little bit in the world and get some fresh air and I'll meet you at the gas station. I'm like, all right, cool. So I walk my baby over to the gas station, and I'm standing at the gas station, just waiting for my wife to pull in. And uh, this car pulls in with, this, with a white woman in it, uh, a different white woman, not my wife. And uh, I could tell. Uh, yes, that's, that's, that's not my wife, that's not my wife. Uh, <laughs> sometimes I get so embarrassing. Uh, so, so I go to the gas station and I'm waiting and this car pulls in and this white woman gets out of her car and starts filling up her car. And like I said, I showed you, my baby's cute. Like people just start to get caught up and they're looking and she got these big eyes and she's just got, she's got this cute nose and people just get caught up and looking at her. And so I'm just used to that part of it too. Like people look at her and get all caught up. And so the woman looks at like, my daughter and she's like, ah. Oh. And, and uh, she looks at me and I smile because like all parents, you take credit for your baby's looks. Like you picked it out or something. Like that's the one we wanted. And uh, <laughs> And so I smile, and the woman does this. She goes like, <laughs> which I have to be honest, as a black person, that's not the first time I've seen a white person get nervous around me for no good reason. I, you know, like there's, there's just that thing, a uh, uh, black woman right here. Have you ever that happen where you see a white person get tense and you're just like, ah, oh, this is not, yeah, okay, thank you for that. <laughs> I, needed, I needed some independent black verification, and she gave well, a little bit, okay. <laughs> So like, I had, so like the woman goes, and I'm just like, oh, I don't know what she's tense about. I don't know what the problem is. You know what, I'm not gonna, I have time to deal with this. I'm just gonna go step to a different part of the gas station so she can have whatever moment she's having. I don't know what's happening here. And so I step to a different part of the gas station, I wait, and then my wife pulls in, and she gets out of the car, and she goes, cute baby. And the woman goes, and I hear her giggle. And I realize, she doesn't realize that that's my wife and we know each other. And she's nervous that like, I guess she thinks, oh no, this is that black guy, white baby scam I just got an email about. <laughs> like she's, and, she, and, I can, and I, so I look at my wife and try to, say, try to communicate to her without saying anything, pretend like you know me, you know what I mean? Like, you need to act like you know me so she can calm down. And I'm trying to just sort of say that to her, but the problem is, is that that's, that's really a minority thing where you can look at somebody and communicate like, this white person's fucked up over here. <laughs> it's not, and my wife's white, and I'm trying to teach her how to do that, but she's not really picking it up very easily. And that's, it's a, like with a black person, like I can look at this black woman right here and be like, there's somebody fucked up over here, and she'll know exactly who I'm talking about. Like I can look at another minority person and tell them somebody fucked up here, they know sort of this area. They would know exactly. So I look at my wife and I'm like, I'm like, you need to, uh, and she's like, ah, like, ah. 
And so I'm, I'm sitting here with my wife trying to like negotiate this, like, and just like, okay, let's fill up the car and go. And all of a sudden I hear the woman say to me, do you work here? And it was weird because I was like, what? But I was also kind of excited. I'm like, oh, okay, whatever she, moment she's having, I don't work here. Like, it, what does she think? It's bring your white baby to work day, you know? Like, <laughs> I don't work here, so I'll just say, no, I don't work here, and this can be done. This conversation can cease to exist, which will be great. And I go, no. She goes, okay, I just don't think you should bring a baby to a gas station. Thank you, <laughs> that person. Uh, and it was just like, and that's my response. I was like, you know, when you hear a sentence that you've never heard before, <laughs> and even though it's all words you know, you've never heard them in that order, so it takes you a second to figure out what the fuck it means. Like I'm like pulling it apart, like diagramming, like they taught me in private school. Okay, wait a minute, the subject, the verb. Okay, adv like I'm trying to figure out like, okay, you don't take a baby to a gas station. What does that mean? What, what does that mean? And the thing is, she keeps talking. I don't think you should take a baby to a gas station. It's not a good idea to take a baby to a gas station. I don't think it's a good idea. I mean, I should nobody to take a baby. And, then my, and here's the thing, because I'm a new parent, suddenly I'm like, oh shit, did I fuck up? Are you not supposed to take a baby to a gas station? Is that like one of the things? Like, I didn't read those books people gave me. I should have read those fucking books. I didn't want homework and parenthood, you know? And so I'm like, is that like a thing? Like, you don't feed a baby until they're six months old. You don't give a baby honey. You don't take a baby to a gas station. Like, is that just... Like, I'm like, are there businesses set up next to gas stations where you drop off a baby while you fill up your car? Like, I'm... And here's the thing. She's giving me a homework assignment for a class I didn't sign up for. And she's expecting me to take the test right now. And I'm like, oh, do I take the baby to a gas station? I'm just like, and I'm doing all this work. And here's the thing, she keeps talking. And so suddenly I'm like, I'm like trying to go back throughout my entire life. And I, my whole life flashes before me. And I'm trying to remember every time I've been to a gas station <laughs> and trying to see picture if I've seen a baby there. <laughs> and then finally it hits me, wait a minute. You can take a baby to a gas station. You can't take a baby and stick him under a car at a gas station. But you can take a baby to a gas station. Like, what are you doing? Like, what do you think is going on here? And so I look at her and I go, I'm just like, okay, look, lady. This is my child. That's my wife. We are in control of this area. <laughs> And a little bit, what I kind of felt like I was saying is like, I've already got a white woman who's in control of me. I don't need your help. And then she got in her car like, oh, and was like drove off angry. Like I had somehow done something. And here's the thing, I was mad about that for like six months. I was just so angry about like, I just said something, I should have done something, I should have said, like and that's how racism works in the 21st century. You don't get any physical scars a lot of times, you just walk around fucking mad at people who you never will see again in life. And I'm like, I wish I, should, I, wish I could find her. I just wanna, just wanna fucking, I just wanna, I just, I just, I just, like I was like homicide, like I didn't wanna kill her. I just wanted to like rip her face off <laughs> and like dice it up into a casserole and then serve it to her family. <laughs> and when they go, wow, this is delicious. Mom would've loved it. I was like, ah, ha, 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 And that's my story. Thank you, everybody. Good night. <laughs> Thank you. 
That's all for this week's Classic Risk Singles episode. Now, don't miss out on our regular full-length episodes. There's a brand new one every Tuesday. And everything you might want to know about us is at risk-show.com. Get the champagne ready. The NBA Finals are here. Welcome to the NBA Finals. Let's raise our glasses and our rings to the two phenomenal teams left standing. My goodness. Here's the high stakes action to thrilling moments we can't miss. He ties the game at the buzzer. And to crowning our next champion. Here's a toast to the NBA Finals. The 2024 NBA Finals presented by YouTube TV continue on ABC.